Ready to form Voltron. of Charlie's Geek Cast. I am your host, Charlie Neymar, and I am going to apologize for taking months off. It's just been kind of hectic, and I've been working on my other show, and it took a little longer than I had planned for me to get in the spot where I could get both shows going at the same time. So, now that I have, um, I'm back on this. So, I have I wanted to do something kind of big. And that also took a little longer because it involved a lot more research than I had planned on doing. But today we are going to talk about, or by we I mean I, am going to talk about one of my favoriteest post-crisis Superman stories ever. And it, it's one of those that are, it's kind of hard to explain without actually doing a lot of backstory into this. Because, well, if anyone knows much about the post-crisis superman era it's uh, my the story i'm going to be covering is the brainiac trilogy three issues that occur in action comics uh, about the year 1980 at the end of 1989 but uh you almost have to bring people up to speed because brainiac believe it or not has been seen in various forms of media in the last few years uh and the post-crisis version is actually very different from most of the others because it does not involve him being a robot at all so I wanted to get a backstory so we could, so everyone knew what Brainiac was, who he was, and where he his character was when we got to this story. Now, post-crisis obviously means after Crisis on Infinite Earths, which happened in 1985 when DC basically did a big, almost reboot of their universe. Combined everything into one universe. It almost immediately was undone in some ways, but... That's what happened. It also caused a reboot to Superman, which is the most important part as far as this episode goes. Uh, some characters didn't get a reboot. Some got a soft reboot. But Superman got a full-on reboot, uh, which caught, which allowed the, uh, the new creators to come up with new versions of long-established characters. John Byrne is usually credited with most of the redo of Superman, although he was helped in many ways by Marv Wolfman, uh, who was also writing... One of the other books, there were three Superman titles at the time, Action Comics, uh, which was basically, which became the team-up book, Superman teaming up with other people in the DCU. Uh, Superman, which was renumbered and got a new number one, also by John Byrne. He wrote those two books and drew both those books. And then the third book was Adventures of Superman, which for the first year was written by Marv Wolfman and drawn by Jerry Ordway. After the first year, Marv Wolfman left, and John Byrne took over writing on Adventures of Superman as well. So the three books got to basically become one, almost one cohesive unit, almost. Uh, so there were subplots and stories running through all three of them at times. 
And so it makes it kind of difficult to just jump in. But this version of Brainiac started out as a circus mentalist with a Farnham and Beatty circus named Milton Moses Fine. It turns out Milton actually possessed some actual mental powers, which would actually reach out into the cosmos while he was sleeping. Don't ask me how. Uh, at one point, he actually comes in contact with the mind of a man from the planet Kalu. Kalu? Kalu? It's another planet. C-O-L-U. I say Kalu. And that man's name was Vril Dox. Now, it's unclear how much of Dox's story about his origins is actually true. But it appears he was a scientist developing teleportation. And during a demonstration, he managed to split himself apart, but failed to bring himself back together again but somehow his mind survived and basically uh is touched by milton's mental powers and kind of homes in on milton and basically takes over his body fortunately on the day that this occurs cat grant her son adam jimmy olsen and clark kent are visiting the circus during its stopover in metropolis as such superman is on hand to take on brainiac but it's actually Milton's wife, Janet, that manages to stop him by throwing a bottle of liquor at his head. He kind of goes crazy using telekinesis to throw buildings around and fight Superman. It's crazy. Later, Milton is under watch at a hospital. And while everyone agrees that he has some sort of mental powers, basically everyone thinks that the whole Vril Dox, Vril Dox thing is just kind of made up. Brainiac then becomes a slub. Slub? He then becomes a subplot in the background as Superman deals with other problems like meeting Silver Banshee and dealing with Checkmate and the events of Action Comics 600, uh, Siphon and Dreadnought coming to town, fighting Metallo in Kansas City with the Doom Patrol, the appearance of a new Supergirl, and going over to, the, to a pocket universe where he ends up acting as judge, jury, and executioner for three Kryptonian villains who have wiped out all life on Earth in that other universe. It is a long story, but basically, he uh, kills them. Now, around this time, Dox has managed to complete his takeover of Fine's body, but that body is kind of rejecting him, uh, and he's dealing with these terrible headaches as the result of a brain tumor. He, he begins killing homeless people to use their spinal fluid to try to help them, but that doesn't work. However, because one of them was a friend of Jimmy's, he ends up getting involved, which leads Superman into getting involved as well. Now, Superman at this point is actually suffering from PTSD after his ordeal in the pocket universe. So when Brainiac fights him and tries to unlock the darkest parts of Superman's mind, it causes a feedback that neither of them are really prepared for. While it knocks out Brainiac, it also unlocks a split personality in Superman, allowing his darker side to manifest as the violent vigilante known as Gangbuster. Meanwhile, philanthropist Lex Luthor, opens up a new state-of-the-art neurosurgery center at Metropolis Memorial Hospital and chooses Brainiac to be the first patient. But of course, there is a reason for this, and not only is Brainiac's brain tumor removed, but circuitry is installed to help enhance Brainiac's mental power and to provide a fail-safe that gives Brainiac excruciating pain whenever he gets out of line. So Luther is now able to control him with a switch in his robotic hand, which... If you don't know, he, he lost one of his hands because he wore a kryptonite ring. And it turns out kryptonite, with a prolonged exposure to kryptonite, can also hurt people. And he had to lose his hand. So now he's got a robot hand. It's fun. Luther has him put, uh, has him go against Superman. Has him put Superman through this mental battle that Superman's never sure when he's actually out of the mental control. Or mental illusions. Uh, but by the end of the battle, Brainiac seemingly activates the failsafe in his brain. 
and burns to death. However, it actually turns out that Brainiac pulled a mental whammy on everybody, and I do mean everyone, and it actually turns out it was a rum-soaked homeless man that burned. Meanwhile, Brainiac somehow has some elective surgery to remove Luther's failsafe from his brain, and thus Luther is now forced to work with Brainiac. Yay. After Earth deals with this alien invasion, Luther is meeting up with Pentagon officials about analyzing the alien weaponry when Gangbuster busts in with plans to take down Luther. After forcefully sending all the officials out of the room, Brainiac appears from a hidden panel intending to put a mental whammy on Gangbuster, but he's unprepared for the willpower and resistance from a Kryptonian mind, and the feedback actually leaves him catatonic. Now, shortly after this, Superman discovers that he's actually Gangbuster, and decides that he, because of this split personality thing, he's really a danger to everyone on Earth because of his powers. And so he exiles himself to space for a time. Now, while he's gone, Luther stages a hostile takeover of Star Labs, but it's, ba it's basically just to get their psionics lab in the Rocky Mountains. They find out about it and sell it to a company called Semtech. So Lex eventually calls off the takeover. But it turns out that Semtech is actually owned by a former LexCorp employee who had only been... Fire, uh, released from LexCorp a few weeks early, a short time earlier. So basically, Simtech is kind of like a dummy corporation for LexCorp. So basically, Star gave Lex what he wanted. And so he has Brainiac sent there for study. Meanwhile, in space, Superman ends up on this planet called Warworld. He meets Mongol, defeats Mongol, and frees Warworld. Meets the cleric, obtains an ancient Kryptonian artifact called the Eradicator, comes to peace with his actions in the pocket universe, and decides to go home. While Superman is busy dealing with his return to Earth, Brainiac is wasting away thanks to being fed through tubes for weeks and not really doing anything because he's catatonic still. He gets hooked up to some sophisticated equipment to monitor his brain activity, and this actually sends him into a deep sleep where he dreams of a ship in the shape of Luther's head and then takes on both Luther and Superman. And this all leads to Brainiac being able to disconnect his mind from his physical body while also allowing his powers to increase a little bit. He uses this opportunity to send his mental form out to study the lab complex because he realizes that he's going to be stuck with Fine's body and needs to find a way to save it before he dies. Then Brainiac temporarily returns to a minor subplot while Superman's life gets way more hectic. Uh, the Eradicator starts causing more problems, such as painfully turning Jimmy into an elastic lad. Then an alien princess named Maxima arrives with plans to mate with Superman due to their genetic compatibility. Then Superman goes to Project Cadmus and works with a DNA alien named X to find out more about his time as Gangbuster. And they get to a point where Gangbuster confronts Luther, but Superman just cannot visualize who he confronted while he was Gangbuster with Luther, which leaves him wondering who put the mental whammy on him in that battle. Uh, next, Superman heads to Professor Hamilton's lab to check on Jimmy and is told of the possibility of the Eradicator causing Jimmy's problems. So he brings it to Hamilton for study, and Jimmy goes all elastic again. Uh, seeing the danger, Superman takes it to the Antarctic and tosses it into a deep crevice. But before he can leave, he has to deal with an ancient alien creature buried beneath the ice. After that, he takes Jimmy over to Cadmus so that they can see if they can figure out what's wrong with him or help him. But Jimmy's not a fan of the idea, and the Newsboy Legion help him bust out until Superman and the Guardian both stop them. Later, Superman realizes that he still has some kind of, kind of connection to the Eradicator and returns to the Antarctic to find it and instead he finds that uh that it has started to create a fortress of some of almost a like of solitude under the ice 
Superman learns about the Eradicator's connection to the House of L and tries to use that to halt the construction, but it doesn't work. When Superman tries to stop it by force, he's attacked and gets hit by a mental and physical whammy that knocks him out and causes him to forget the events of that whole issue and other events tied to the Eradicator. This also, in my opinion, is also the point where the Eradicator starts to slowly start reprogramming Superman into more of a Kryptonian, but we'll get more into that later. But that basically, in less than 15 minutes, brings us up to speed on what you need to know about Brainiac for this story. So I'm going to take a quick break, play a promo or two, and when I come back, we'll get into the Brainiac trilogy. Charlie's Geekcast will return after these promos. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. I'm trailing. Man, it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time. Yes, it is, and we've been away so long. Yeah, but real life... And... You know what? I, I just I just can't do this. Can't do what? We have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life. I mean, we can talk about real life getting in the way. Which it has. But it's it's just not fair. So we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like Season 2 of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. (laughs) The show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of Bailytude. And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailey2.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. We now return to Charlie's Geekcast. Alright, Action Comics number 647 had a cover date of November 1989 and was released around October 10th, 1989. It has a wonderful cover by George Perez, basically of, it looks like Brainiac attack, putting a mental whammy on Superman. And of course, it's George Perez, so it looks awesome. The colors really pop. I don't know why I feel like, I feel this way about these kinds of things, but for some reason, having this green in with the Superman colors just seems to look really good. I don't know why, but yeah, um, it's pretty cool and Brainiac looks very scary. Uh, It's really a cool cover. But anyway, the title of the story is Brain Drain, written by Roger Stern, drawn by George Perez, Carrie Gamble, and Brett Breeding, lettered by Bill Oakley, colored by Glenn Whitmore. The associate editor was John Peterson and was edited by Mike Carlin. Our story begins with Clark having a Brainiac-related nightmare that basically recaps some of the setup I just went through, but in a somewhat confusing dream format. Uh, The important thing is that Superman finally realizes that it was Brainiac that tried mentally attacking him when he went after Luthor as gangbuster. As such, he now knows that Brainiac is still alive and has some kind of connection to Luthor. Meanwhile, out at the psionics lab in the Rocky Mountains, Brainiac can feel that Superman knows and recaps what he has been up to since we last saw him and figures out that he's going to need to expedite the recovery of his body since it's only a matter of time before Superman finds him. Outside, Dr. Sidney Happerson and Dr. Gretchen Kelly talk about how Brainiac's body is still wasting away and he could die today or linger on for weeks. Kelly heads off so she can give Luther the bad news in person because you don't do you don't dally around with Lex Luthor. And for to go for his monthly physical, 
While Happerson heads back inside, determined to make up for his past failures. However, Brainiac surprises him by waking up from his coma and hits Happerson with a mental blast that causes him to bump into a recently delivered crate from Missouri. A crate with someone talking inside of it. Back in Metropolis, Superman heads back to the quote-unquote scene of the crime at LexCorp Tower, where Gangbuster encountered Brainiac. He uses X-ray vision to find the conference room he was in and the hidden panel where Brainiac was hiding, but that hidden panel has been replaced with a liquor cabinet. Needing to find Luther, he uses super hearing to find out that Luther is down in Houston and takes off to the southwest. Meanwhile, inside LexCorp, employees start noticing that their network has gone down. Now, before you can think this is somehow related to Superman's visit, we go back to the psionics lab where, under Brainiac's direction, Happerson has taken down the LexCorp network. Brainiac has also begun using his mental power to build little mental brain probes that give him better control over multiple people. Down in Houston, Luther is being shown a new fully automated munitions plant. But soon, production comes to a halt and all the machinery attempts to kill Luther and the two scientists that are with him. Unfortunately for them, the emergency exit is down on the plant floor, so they are basically stuck. Fortunately, though, Superman has finished checking LexCorp's downtown holdings in Houston and is heading out to the oil fields when he hears a siren coming from the LexCorp munitions plant. Upon arrival, Superman begins trashing the machinery, but Brainiac has Happerson connect him to the computers directly and starts directing the attack on Superman. However, this is Superman we're talking about here, and while he gets knocked around a bit, he still comes out on top. But not before Brainiac opens the gas pressure lines. So Superman has to grab everyone and bust out of the building before it explodes. Back in Colorado, a scientist named Jacoby overhears Brainiac in the lab and checks in to see what's going on. But he's quickly silenced when a metallic hand grabs him on the shoulder. Outside the plant, Superman confronts Luther, warning him about trying to control Brainiac the way he controls other people. And while he can't prove that he's connected, with Brainiac, he'll be keeping a closer eye on Old Baldy. After Superman leaves, Luther heads to his ranch, where he meets up with Dr. Kelly and heads to the hidden and rather ginormous communications room, and learns about the network being down. However, he then is told that he has a call from Happerson, so he orders the entire ginormous room to be cleared, and he takes the call and Happerson brings him up to speed on what has been happening out in the Rockies, explaining that Jacoby had managed to raise an alarm, which broke Brainiac's control, and in all the confusion, Brainiac managed to commandeer a helicopter and escape. Lex orders Brainiac to be found and neutralized and realizes that this is very bad. However, it's actually worse than he thinks. See, Brainiac didn't leave. J Jacoby didn't raise any alarm because he was stopped by that metallic arm. And now everyone in the psionics lab has been fitted with those brain probes. And that voice in the crate and the metallic arm both belong to Metallo who is now Brainiac's new associate in charge of field operations. To be continued. Now, I didn't continue this on, like, try to do the story of all three of them in one shot, because this is the Superman books, and while they don't have the triangle numbering yet, this is basically the never-ending saga era of the books. So, even though this story has come to an end for now, it doesn't get picked up until the next issue of action, for the most part. I mean, there's some sub subplot stuff that might show up. But so basically, there's other things that happen to Superman before you get back to here. And it's kind of important, some of it. So you can't just run through it. So I'll get to that, though. Hang on. First, though, I wanted to go over some notes about this issue. Uh, I'm looking through here in pages one through four. We see Superman's uh, dream. 
It makes for an interesting, but to me, kind of confusing recap of Brainiac story. Not that I'm sure, I'm sure my version of it wasn't exactly clear, but this version kind of is throwing everything on the page at one time. And it, 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 I, I was only kind of confused by it because I literally had just been going through a bunch of issues coming up with this uh, review of everything that Brainiac had been doing since his debut. So I was still kind of confused by it. If you were a new reader, you'd probably get lost. Um, but I, I can't help but wonder, though, if Superman remembering that Brainiac was there is just because Brainiac's still messing with his head or was reaching out to test his power, or if it's because of that whammy that the Eradicator put on him last issue, uh, in a previous issue of, of Adventures of Superman. I'm not sure, but one or the other, I'm sure, is the reason. Or, you know, it's Superman's willpower. Maybe you just finally remembered. Moving up to page seven. Uh, this is your first clue about Metallo being in the crate. See, it came from LexCorp's Missouri plant. And like I mentioned earlier, Superman and the Doom Patrol took on Metallo in Kansas City, which, unless you don't know your ge geography, is in Missouri. Over in page eight. Clue number two that there is that there's a voice coming from the crate. I mean... How many voices do you know come in the crate? Uh, also, Superman being able to see and hear what's going on inside LexCorp Tower on this page will soon come to an end. Eventually, and I believe it's as soon as maybe even Superman 50, but I could be wrong on that. That, I'm going by memory. But at some point, Luther adds sound bafflers and lead shielding, at least to the upper floors of LexCorp Tower, so that, you know, Superman can't be listening in or checking things out. Uh, page 10, we start seeing Carrie Gamble's more obvious contribution to the issue. I'm going to get into that in just a minute. Uh, Brainiac's face on this page is very Gamble, despite Happerson and the panel layout being more Parisian. Also, clue number three as to Metallo's identity is that Brainiac refers to him as Mr. Corbin. And obviously, and I think we knew about it at this point, uh, Metallo's original name was John Corbin. Now, speaking about the art, I wanted to clarify... Just what each person was doing as far as the artwork, because there's a lot of George Perez in it. There's also quite a bit of Carrie Gamble in it. And, of course, a lot of Brett Breeding in it. So it's like, what what did they do? So I got in touch with Mike Carlin on Facebook. And I simply asked him if he could explain the art breakdown. Because, see, I had been to the Superman celebration a few years ago, right before Man of Steel came out. And I'd asked Brett Breeding about it because he was a guest and they had some downtime doing commissions. So I was just talking to him and I happened to ask about it. But part of it is, it, I don't remember exactly everything he said and I don't want to go off memory and put false words in his mouth. So I decided to go on Facebook and see if I could get Mike Carlin to respond to me. And he actually did. So here's what he said. <sighs> George did thumbnails on typewriter-sized paper. This was much faster for George. We'd enlarge those to full artboard size, then Carrie would lightbox those onto actual artboard, but still only in, in layout form. Then Brett would do finishes, which is more than just the inking, uh, on the artboards. He generally did finishes on Jurgens as well as other artists. So, basically, George did his thumbnails... 
then they blew it up and i guess uh carrie gamble also added to the uh, added to the thumbnails onto the or moved those over to the artboard and then i guess add some of his flourishes as well and then brett would just put it all together so that's how the art was done so that's why some characters will look very gamelish and other characters will look very Parisian. So there you go. Having said that, I'm moving back into my notes on page 11. We see an amazing use of the color purple. I didn't even know that there were that many shades of purple until prepping for this episode. I mean, even the hard hats are purple. Purple's a big thing for LexCorp and Lex Luthor specifically. Um, ever since he got that jumpsuit in the 70s, he's been a big fan of purple, apparently. Uh, page 12, you see more gamble work, uh, especially like on Luther's face on this one and the scientists. Uh, you also see that we have a hovering computer with a holographic projection screen. So uh, for some reason, that kind of takes me out of it because all of a sudden it's like too futuristic, especially this era was supposed to be a little more grounded. Now, granted, I know we're this is also a version of Metropolis in which uh, there is a lab outside of town that works with clones and genetics, but still. Oh, and Krypton, of course, has all of its advanced stuff, but still. This is created by LexCorp, and I don't know, just seems a little pushy. Uh, number four, or page 14. George Perez has, does these flying shots with Superman, and they are just amazing. He doesn't just do it with Superman, obviously. He does it with other characters. But the way he does it is he takes the character. He usually has the character flying kind of crooked. He kind of It's kind of an emulation of the Superman movie flying shots with Christopher Reeve. You have the character kind of flying towards you. But then he tilts the character a bit. Then you have the background, which tilts in a different direction. So it looks like... I mean, it really does look very good as far as flying shot. Like a special technique is being used. And it's really cool. Uh, in addition, on this page, the background, uh, they actually use... Uh, this. The panel I'm speaking of is the first panel uh, where you see Superman flying out of Houston. Uh, as good as Perez is with his details, it looks like they actually took a photo of the downtown Houston and then drew Superman flying around it. Page 16 through 18. This is Superman fighting the robots. That is really cool. I don't care what era. Whether you're watching the old Fleischer cartoons of the 40s, the old comics of the Golden Age, comics of the Silver Age, comics of the Bronze Age, comics of the Modern Age, whatever. Superman fighting robots is awesome. Uh, page 19, the fourth clue about Metello. There's not too many robots in the Superman books that have this much detail on them other than Metello. I don't know why John Byrne put that much detail into them. But I think that's part of the reason why he doesn't show up very often. Uh, this is the first time he's shown up since Byrne left in a Superman title. And it would have to be a George Perez issue to do it. And I think shortly after this, he starts getting different bodies. So that it's uh, you know more malleable and he's not stuck in this one. Because as this issue will show you, doing it like this, he's kind of limited. Uh, also, I also like how Superman used his back to bust out of the building. I'm not sure how he was wide enough to protect Luther and two scientists, but it's pretty cool that he was able to do that. On page 21, I love that Luther basically has a Star Wars set under his seemingly normal-looking ranch mansion. Um, I also love the switcheroo here. 
basically, if you're reading this for the first time and you haven't looked ahead, you would, just like Luther, would have been tricked into thinking that um, <clears throat> that Jacoby really had put a halt to things and that Brainiac had gotten away and the story was going in a different direction. You would have had no idea until you turned the final page and saw Brainiac surrounded by uh, scientists that are just staring off and then Metallo standing next to him. It's really cool uh, way they did that. Now, like I said, this uh, since this only takes place in action, there are other events happening in the other two super books. So I wanted to bring you up to speed on what's going on in them in between issues. Uh, so over in Superman, number 38, Jimmy currently is being studied by Professor Hamilton again uh, and is accidentally transported into this colorless dimensional void and is replaced by a being known as Husk. Meanwhile, Superman visits the Farnham and Beatty Circus for more clues on onto where Brainiac might be, uh, but and finds the uh, the love the uh, nasty elephant trainer again, or animal trainer, and has to take him down a peg or two again. But while he's there, he finds out that the Brainiac that they are currently promoting is a fake. Doesn't even really have a goatee. Oh, and at this point, the weather goes nuts all over the world, and Metropolis is hit by a tidal wave. Over in Action Comics number 461, Clark finally meets up with Colin Thornton, who's been hanging around the Daily Planet the last several issues, and he offers him the manager-editor job over at Newstime Magazine. Also, Superman is reminded about the Eradicator, uh, because of Jimmy's Jimmy missing, and is heads to the Antarctic to shut it down. See, it looks. It turns out those all those weather problems are due to the Eradicator trying to terraform Earth into a new Krypton. So, in order to control the Eradicator, Superman has to undergo this basically a Kryptonian rite of passage, and so he is sent into this phantom-like zone, uh, where he ends up on a, on Krypton right before it blows up. But after Jor-El has sent the Matrix Chamber to Earth, in which has Baby Superman in or Embryo Superman in it fetus superman whatever however you want to look at it so basically he has to really quick with Jor-El's help go through the whole rights thing while lara who cannot believe that this hairy beast is his is her son uh kind of oh woe was me and all the stuff uh and just as krypton explodes superman is sent hurling through this phantom-like zone back into the fortress and as he's going unconscious he i guess he speaks it in kryptonian uh orders the eradicator to shut down when he comes to all the construction has stopped. The fortress is still there. Much of the stuff that he saw floating around in this in the Phantom Zone is now in the fortress. The Eradicator has shut down, apparently. And Earth is basically returned to normal. And then we move into Action Comics four, or 648. So I'm going to play a quick promo. And when I come back, we'll check out this issue. Charlie's GeekCast will return after these promos. Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, created from the cosmic legends of the universe. Superman. Always a pleasure to be of service to the law. Wonder Woman. Finished. Now let's bring the world back to normal. Batman. Well, Professor Baffles has evidently lost his baffling power. Aquaman. The jet nozzle is buried in the sea bottom. The jet stream is stopped! And those three junior super friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Their mission, to fight injustice. 
to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. Join Mike Zumo on the Man of Steam podcast as coverage of Super Friends and its many incarnations begins in March at www.2true3.com. We now return to Charlie's Geekcast. Okay, Action Comics number 648 had a cover date of December 1989 and a release date of November 7th, 1989, with a beautiful cover by George Perez, which was also reprinted in the Superman Gallery that came out shortly after Superman's death, which was um, the first time I got to see it, and I fell in love with it right away when I saw that, so seeing it here is really cool. I am a big fan of George Perez's art, and he seemed to step it up on his Superman art when he joined the Super Team, so this cover's just beautiful. Anyway, it shows uh, Superman firing off his heat vision while fighting an army of Metallos, which does make sense once you learn about the story inside the issue. Speaking of the story, the title of it is Body and Mind, written by Roger Stern. Artists were George Perez, Kerry Gamble, and Brett Breeding. Lettered by Bill Oakley, colored by Glenn Whitmore, associate editor was John Peterson, and the editor was, of course, Mike Carlin. This time out, we begin with a recap of Metallo's origin. We flash back to the car crash that basically killed John Corbin. Then we flash back to Professor Emmett Vale bringing Metallo online, giving him his kryptonite power source, and then being killed by Metallo. Then we get a recap of his first encounter with Superman and how Luther prevented him from killing Superman and then ripped the kryptonite out of his chest and how that ended up leading to his encounter with Doom Patrol and Superman in Kansas City later on. During all of this, Brainiac is actually running scans of Metallo to learn more about him and he sends him on a mission to Metropolis. In Metropolis, Clark is glad that he was finally able to shut down the Eradicator and is wondering what has possessed them to even contemplate Colin Thornton's offer of managing editor of Newstime? But then Perry interrupts his thoughts when he assigns him to investigate a, a robot attacking the Mercantile Bank. So after a quick change of clothes, Superman zooms out to the bank to find Metallo attacking again. After exchanging words, Superman is surprised when a solid punch causes Metallo to actually explode. Before he can worry about it too much though, a police officer tells Superman that a whole army of Metallos is attacking LexCorp Tower. A quick x-ray van van. A quick x-ray scan reveals that they are just robots, but they're full of explosives, so Superman makes quick work of them, but he's still left with plenty of questions. Meanwhile, while Brainiac was scanning Metallo earlier, we find out that he was also cross-referencing that info with other cybernetic beings, such as Cyborg of the Titans and Robot Man of the Doom Patrol, in an effort to create the proper reinforcement for his new body. But while he's explaining this to Happerson, his vital signs begin to quickly deteriorate, and he's rushed into cryogenic storage. While putting him in cryogenic storage temporarily saves Brainiac's body, it somehow also amplifies his mental powers. He's now able to project himself to Metallo, who is currently in Metropolis, recruiting the nation's leading geneticist, Dr. Augustin, or Augustin, in helping create a new body for Brainiac that combines human DNA and Kaluan DNA. Of course, he's also got highly detailed CG DNA models stored on one floppy disk, which in itself is its own kind of miracle. But anyway, thanks to the Brainiac mind probe Metallo gave to the Doctor, Brainiac is sort of able to join them as they head to the only place with the proper tools for Dr. Augustin to help. 
the Cadmus Project. Thanks to Brainiac's Jedi mind tricks, Metallo and the Doctor are able to enter Cadmus and get to work. Double X senses Brainiac's presence and calls for the Guardian and Cadmus security. Unfortunately, Metallo is too much for them, and they have to call for help. High over Metropolis, Superman hears the high-frequency SOS and zooms to help, which is reported to Luther, and he uses this opportunity to get the heck out of town. At Cadmus, Superman arrives to confront Metallo, but thanks to the lack of kryptonite in his chest, Superman is able to quickly disarm and disleg Metallo, leaving him pretty much harmless. Unfortunately, Dr. Augustine managed to escape in all of the confusion. In the Rockies, Luther arrives at the Sonics Lab to find out that Brainiac is very much in control of things and has plans for his Chrome Dome partner to be continued. Alright, first off, going through the notes, page number one. Up to this point, we had not seen much of John Corbin before he woke up as Metallo. So it was kind of interesting here to see. I mean, we still don't actually see him. And I don't think we ever find out what he looked like pre-Metallo. But we do see a little bit of his previous life because we see the car crash. I don't think we even knew he was in a car crash. We might have. Anyway, page two. Uh, basically, all this stuff with Emmett Vale is pretty much lifted from Superman. Just redrawn. But I believe all the script is basically the same. Moving into page six, we have a slight color error. Uh, panel six, Metallo's head is colored in a flesh tone. And then the next to it, in panel seven, Happerson's face is left uncolored. I'm almost wondering if maybe they accidentally made a flip-flop when they were printing, doing something with the colors during the printing process and got those two panels somehow flipped on that one bit, but I'm not sure. Uh, moving into page seven. I like that Metello actually questions whether or not Brainiac is controlling him as well, because you know the readers would have. Uh, but then he kind of brushes it off, and we don't talk about it again. So I guess we're just supposed to be like, if he's not worried about it, I'm not worried about it. Uh, moving all the way up to page 13, Superman utilizes his cape to smother one of the explosions on this page. And I should have pointed out that back when he was on Warworld, uh, he was in this cool warrior costume. Uh, well, I don't know about cool, I've been kind of revealing for a guy, but uh, he was in this warrior costume, and using the Eradicator, he was actually, uh, he was actually basically all the, I think the idea was the atoms from that costume were re, were taken apart and then reformed into his normal Superman costume, I think, I haven't read it that detailed in a long time, but uh, basically uh, this costume that the Eradicator creates it's basically like his kryptonian costume from the pre-crisis days uh the costume can't get messed up uh, the cape is indestructible and also stretches and all that stuff uh it's going to go away fairly soon once the eradicator story wraps up so we'll soon be getting back to the cape there the costume stays pretty much indestructible but the cape gets shattered tattered a lot uh, page 15, back in the day when you could store anything on a floppy disk, I have a feeling that highly detailed computer-generated images of DNA would probably exceed the 1.44 megabyte storage capacity. Um, then again, in the old Transformer comic books, all of Optimus Prime's programming was stored on a floppy disk, so and he turned out okay, so what do I know? Uh, page 21, the first time I read this scene with Superman quote-unquote disarming Metallo, I really did get a chuckle. Uh, I wasn't expecting it. You don't normally get the Superman in this era making a lot of puns during fights, 
Uh, also, Roger Stern is not one of the more humorous of the writers, other than the, like an issue or two where he brings on uh, Plastic Man. So to have this kind of joke here, it was kind of a surprise. And then on page 22, I love it when the high and mighty Lex Luthor gets put in his place. I love it every time. And it'll happen again next issue, so I'm excited. Okay, now, you're probably wondering, well, maybe even if you aren't, what happens in the other Superbooks at this point? Okay, so after this, we go into the Superman title. And while Superman is dealing with Husk, Jimmy has an excellent adventure, or maybe a bogus journey, uh, in another dimension. But eventually, both Jimmy and Husk end up back in their proper dimensions, and all is right with the world once again. Again. Also, Clark makes a decision regarding the news time offer. I don't think it's revealed in this issue. I think that you have to wait until the follow-up issue. But this also this issue also begins a little bit of an inconsistency. See, the idea is that the Eradicator is starting to mess with Superman, possibly leading him into this decision to become a managing editor. And I think part of it has to do with the costume that the Eradicator cre- created, plus all the mental stuff he's been going through between the Eradicator and Brainiac. So, yeah. Um, for some reason, though, Jerry Ordway, the writer on Superman, jumps into this first. In this issue, Superman's doing things like it, it seems to be a little colder, uh, a little more quote-unquote logical, kind of Spock-like. And then the other two titles, Adventures in Action, uh, he still seems pretty much normal for the most part. Uh, now, a couple months down the road here, the other two books will also follow, and they will also, uh, and he'll be kind of cold and distant and logical all the way across the board. But for some reason, only in super, at this point, it's only in Superman that he acts like this. And then once you get over to action and adventures, he's normal again. I'm not, I'm not sure why, why this happened. Uh, but I, I, don't, I, I, can't, I don't want to sit here and fault anyone either because I honestly don't know whose fault it is. But anyway, moving right along, we move into Adventures of Superman. And this time, it's set at Christmas. And it's mostly about Clark's going away party. See, I think that this is basically where we find out that Clark has decided to accept the offer and become the managing editor at Nude's time. So they're having a going away party slash Christmas party. And, however, during the party, we find out that Allie the office girl has actually been living at the planet for the last several months. Now, I'm not sure if this is uh, one of the subplots that John Burner intentionally introduced way back while he was still on the books or if this was something like uh dan jurgens read a line in one of the stories and was like hey this might be something to play off of but uh or maybe one of the other writers and they decided to put it in adventures i'm not sure but either way this is a very creative uh, step to make with the character because literally the line in one issue was that uh perry white says you're always here before me and she's like well i have a cot in the storeroom and it was brushed off. So if that was Burns' idea, that it really simmered for a long time. And if it wasn't Burns' idea, it's really cool to come up with a whole story based on basically one panel of a comic. So that's really cool. Anyway, uh, it provides an opportunity to remind readers that not everyone will be able to enjoy a holly jolly Christmas this year. Uh, but Allie does get to move in with the Whites. Uh, which is odd because Allie and then Perry's wife is, Perry's wife is named Alice, so that 
gets kind of confusing. Uh, and she's going to live there long, as long as it takes for her to find a place to live. And then Perry, realizing that she's probably owed a lot of back pay and overtime for the extra hours she's put in, considering she lived there, he's planning to use that as leverage to kind of get her a, a, a higher sal- a raise in her salary so she can actually live off what she gets paid. So it's really nice. There's also a uh, nice little scene uh, where Brainiac uses some computer imagery to make it look like Clark, uh, to make it look like Luther is giving all of his employees a nice, generous Christmas bonus. So that's pretty cool. Nice little bit of humor in from this story. But that brings us back to Action Comics number six forty nine, with a cover date of January nineteen ninety and a release date of December fifth nineteen eighty nine, with a cover by George Perez again. And this time we see it's this one's basically green, uh, but we see this we see Superman in the foreground and in the background we see the debut of the post-crisis Brainiac ship, which I'll get more into in a little bit. But it looks cool, and it's a really awesome cover. Also, George Perez is just really good at covers. I gotta say, uh, the title of this one is called Man and Machine. Writer was Roger Stern, artist was George Perez, Kerry Gamble, and Brett Breeding, letterer Bill Oakley, colorist Glenn Whitmore, associate editor John Peterson, and editor was again Mike Carlin. And this story begins in the Rocky, in the Rocky Mountains. Brainiac shows Luther that he, what he's been up to for the past week, because in the timeline, each issue takes place kind of across a week. Anyway, uh, his body is being fortified both genetically and bionically, while his brain probes give him complete control over everyone in the psionics lab facility. He also recaps his origin again, which Luther never believed before, but this time includes mental imagery to help prove the point. Meanwhile, Superman is literally brooding over Metropolis. After the events of last issue, Metallo refuses to talk, but we have uh, Superman has learned about Dr. Augustine, and thanks to some clues from Double X, he knows Brainiac was somehow involved. Also, Luther is missing. He isn't in Metropolis, nor at any of his international holdings, and he knows this because he's literally flown around the world and checked all of them twice. Facing a dead end, he decides to see if he can find some info as Clark, but this time he's going to be using the resources of news time. Using the cover story that he wants to familiarize himself with the facilities before his first official day on Monday, uh, Clark meets up with Colin Thornton on the weekend and his executive intern, Mara Talbert. Talbert? Talbot. Mara Talbot, who shows him his new office, which looks rather familiar. After Colin leaves, Mara shows him his state-of-the-art desk with a super awesome computer setup, and then she leaves to allow him to try it out. Looking up Lex Luthor, he quickly learns about the hostile takeover of Star, and about the psionics lab in the Rockies, and figures out the connection between Simtech, who owns the lab, and LexCorp, who technically owns the owner of Simtech. So he tells Mara she can leave for the day, he changes to Superman, and heads out west. In the labs, Luther manages to break free and is about to start trashing the place when he learns that everything he'd just been shown by Brainiac was just an illusion, and that he'd been trapped inside a secluded room the entire time. Now, everything he'd been shown was actually happening, but Brainiac wasn't actually there. Then Brainiac provides him with a brain probe, so no more Luther problem. Outside, Superman arrives and is fired upon by ginormous cannons explaining some of the construction that Luther referred to in the last issue. Uh, Superman busts in anyway and finds Luther, who just stares blankly at him and says, The procedure is complete. All is going well. So behind him, Brainiac steps out of the cryogenic vat that he's been in, revealing a rather green, rather cut, and very naked new body. 
Using his newly improved power, Brainiac attacks Superman's mind, and while it appears to work at first, Superman eventually manages to fight back, and is about to break free of, of Brainiac's hold when Brainiac uses the brain probes to draw enough electrical energy from everyone's brains to hit Superman with a psychokinetic blast powerful enough, powerful enough to even knock him out. By the time the Man of Steel comes to, Brainiac is gone and Superman is surrounded by unconscious LexCorp employees. After making sure everyone seems to be okay, he uses his super hearing to pick up the sound of Brainiac's feet as he's running, and an engine igniting. Following them to their source, he's introduced to Brainiac's new headship, somewhat based on the Luther headship from his dream a while ago, and now modified to heighten the, its psychological impact. It takes off with Superman following close behind, but Brainiac reveals that while he was in Metropolis, Metallo had planted four bombs in strategic look in four different strategic locations around the city, and while they have a small amount of radioactive yield, they are powerful enough to destroy the city when they all go off. So he sends mental images to show Superman where the bombs are, and the Action Ace heads back to Metropolis and gathers the bombs, getting them the heck out of town before they explode. And they must have, and based on the explosion, it's a good thing there isn't much of a radioactive yield because it looks like one of the atomic explosions you see in the archive videos. But whatever, however powerful it was, it must have been powerful enough to knock out Superman because it takes a little bit and it's all, and we see the sunset and darkness come to town before Superman finally emerges from the water on the shores of Metropolis. And somewhere in space, Brainiac mentally tells Superman that he will be back and Superman vows that he will be ready. Alright, notes on this one. Moving right into those. Page 7. Again, I love it when Luther puts is put in his place. He thinks he can break free from Brainiac's trap, and whammo, it's been an illusion the whole time. It is so cool. I, I mean, I'm sorry, maybe it's just me, but I know all the stuff Brainiac, or Luther's been doing to Superman all this time, and their history from before the crisis. So, the just the idea of Luther getting his for a little bit is kind of fun. Page 8, the news time building is based on the Los Angeles City Hall building, which doubled as the Daily Planet in the Adventures of Superman TV show from the 1950s, which is why it makes sense that Clark's new managing editor office would be basically based on Perry White's office from that same TV show, except for the updates to the desk. You've got the blinds in the background, you've got the long room, uh, the desk looks the same, I mean everything's pretty much the same. They even refer to it as the 50s executive look. Pages 9 through 10, it is cool that they were trying to bring something new to this comic with the computer screen stuff that they did. However, the poor printing process of the time, plus the fact that they were using yellow imagery and text on, green, on a light green background, and the green was kind of a yellowish green, made it very difficult to read. Fortunately, they worked around all this by having Clark basically repeating everything he could see on the screen or summarizing it, so uh, it's not that terrible, but it's very hard to read in the actual comic. Um, I'm hoping if they ever reprint it that it'll look a little better, but I'm not sure. Page 12. Uh, now, I mentioned about the timeline. So basically what we're talking about here is that technically Brainiac's pretty much been in charge of the psionics lab for about two weeks, which means that the construction using... Earth science, I mean, basically, because, I mean, he can't 
create. Well, I guess he. I don't know if he can really create Kaluan technology on Earth using Earth materials. But anyway, basically, what we've got here is that in the span of two weeks, Brainiac had them create these ginormous energy cannons to try to stop Superman, which don't work, and build the Brainiac ship. It's kind of hard to believe. Now, even if Brainiac was able to make them work 24 hours a day, all that time, first of all, the bodies would give out, and two, I honestly don't think that they still could have done it in two weeks. So maybe there's some other timeline thing going on. I'm not sure, but... Uh, also, based on where Superman enters the room and the position of the cryogenic tank that Brainiac was in, he should have seen Brainiac as soon as he walked into the room. Now, maybe he was so focused on, Super on Luther that nothing else mattered, but he should have, especially since that he... I mean, it's just the way it's set up. You can actually see the water looks like it's pouring out of the tank, which somehow got damaged, which we don't see. But um, the water is pouring out of the tank in front of Superman. And yeah, anyway, page 13, Brainiac has gone from basically an overweight drunk to very sickly skinny guy and now is green and ripped. And he literally has a chrome dome because it's metallic. Other than putting on clothes, he will basically retain this look for about a decade. Uh, I believe it's the Superman, it's the Doomsday Wars miniseries, uh, and his intelligence gets placed inside of a robotic body to try to make Brainiac more, bring him more in line with what is known in the animated series of the time, without having to introduce a brand new Brainiac. Uh, page 15, the imagery used to show Brainiac trying to destroy Superman's mind is equal parts awesome and disgusting. Uh, basically what we're seeing here, if you're not looking at the issue, uh, basically we see Superman's head explode, complete with blood, uh, shooting off in all directions, and eventually Superman's got his head hands on the side. We even see his eyes kind of floating around. But to show that brain, uh, Superman's fighting back the control, we see him actually pulling all, this, all, all of it back together to form his head. It's disturbing, but it's really cool. Um, let's see. Also... This help, the, the art does help you realize that the willpower needed to fight through this pain has got to be something cool. Because to uh, if you think about it, I don't know how much of it's just the imagery, but if Superman feels like his brain has exploded and his head is exploding, that's got to hurt. And he fights through that and pulls himself together again. So that's, I mean, that's kind of a good demonstration of Superman's willpower there. Uh, page 18, this is Brainiac's headship. This is basically the Brainiac headship that debuted in 1983, except that instead of silverish chrome, it's now purple and green because presumably because it was built in a LexCorp place, basically all the metallic parts are purple, and then it's got a lot of special effects stuff, which are in a green color. I mean, it looks cool. It just, it's, it's kind of interesting when you think about it. Uh, page 21, I'm glad Brainiac mentioned the negligible radiation yield, because like I said, it sure looks like an atomic type of explosion. Uh, page 22, there isn't much to say about this page other than to point out that it's beautiful. The artwork looks great. The coloring, which is limited at this time, really looks beautiful. You've got the sun setting on the water. And back in these days, I mean, you had flat colors. You could sometimes do some shading, but... It's not the, like the CG stuff you got now. So the stuff that they... Or CG stuff? The, they, they, it's not computer coloring. This is printing. And the stuff they, 
that is done on this page is very pretty. Uh, kudos to Glenn Whitmore for knocking it out of the park, and also kudos to whichever part of the art team actually did this page because it looks beautiful. But that's basically going to do it for this story. I just uh, this is one of my favorite stories, other than the whole time thing. This is a very good as far as covering all your bases with plot holes. Uh, I don't, it didn't find too many, or maybe I'm blind because I love the story so much. Uh, but I mean, three parts. It fits in on the other stories. You can actually sort of, for the most part, read it on its own, which is kind of what I did here. Uh, but yeah, you can kind of just sort of read it on its own, and it, it makes for a great story on its own. It's just a fun story and with phenomenal artwork and very and awesome writing from Roger Stern. I, I can't recommend this story enough. Brainiac will appear in a couple annuals in 1990 in a story that crosses over between Adventures of Superman Annual and the Legion when back when it was L-E-G-I-O-N 90, uh, their annual. And then he will return for the big Panic in the Sky storyline in early 92. And he'll make some more appearances after that, but I'm not going to keep talking about that. I mean, that takes you to 92. That's his next couple of appearances. Uh, as for Superman, well, obviously his adventures continue. Some of the upcoming highlights include Superman Racing the Flash, uh, the end of the Eradicator storyline. Lois and Clark start dating and getting really close. Batman comes to town. Superman goes to hell, uh, which leads to the death of a supporting character and a big revelation. Uh, Red Kryptonite removes Superman's power and Lois and Clark get engaged. For more on all of this and more, I highly suggest reading the comics. But if you don't feel like doing that or can't afford it, I mean, most of them most of them, not all of them, but most of them are on Comixology right now, these days, either in collections or I think they've actually split up all the collections into individual issues. Uh, and of course, you can also check out your back issue bins. Uh, but if you can't do that, money's tight, you don't have the time to read all those issues, then I honestly, or even if you do have time to do that, I also recommend as a companion to that, or as an alternate, alternate, Check out From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast hosted by Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor. They are literally going through every every appearance, every issue uh, of Superman, starting from Man of Steel number one in 1986, all the way to Adventures of Superman 649 in 2006, as well as the satellite titles like Steel, Superboy, Supergirl, etc. They're currently up to about 95-ish, I believe, 95, 96. Um... Getting, uh, as I'm recording this right now, which hopefully won't be too long before I release it, they are currently up to the Trial of Superman storyline, and I would just I will include links to the shows. I've actually been on a couple myself, uh, so you know you might want to check them out. But yeah, it's a it's a great show. Uh, it helped inspire me to even do podcasting in the first place. So I highly recommend you go check that out. I also want to thank Mike Carlin for explaining how the art chores broke down for these this story, as well as the next few issues of action. Uh, despite the fact that he probably won't be listening to this episode anytime soon. And on that disappointing note, I will bid you adieu. I will see you next time, and take care. Thank you for listening to Charlie's GeekCast. Feedback for the show can be sent to charliesgeekcast at gmail.com or you can feel free to leave a comment at the show's posting at charliesgeekcast.com. All images and music heard on the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for entertainment purposes only. No infringement is intended. 
Charlie's Geekcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Please be sure to stop by Two True Freaks to check out more great shows. Thank you again for listening, and good night.